This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Connie Dolan, and I'm one of the faculty with the PhD program at the University of Maryland. And this is another one of our podcasts for the PhD, the first course. And I am joined here by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the director of the master's and PhD program of the Graduate School of the University of Maryland. And our guest today is Denise Hess, who is got quite a number of personalities. She's a faculty member for the master's program. Um, she's also a chaplain by training, which she'll talk about that. She's also been leading um, the Supportive Care Coalition um, as it was and is in this transition. Um, she has a wealth of experience to offer us. And so um, we're going to be kind of thinking about all of this wide spectrum um, in palliative care of the different entry points and the different work that still needs to be done, which as you're thinking about your leadership and pursuing your PhD, um, just really understanding that it's wide open. Um, so Denise, would you like to kind of introduce yourself and give us really much more of an in-depth background of kind of where you've come from and entered this field and what you're doing now? Mm -hmm. Sure, <clears throat> happy to. So yeah, I uh, kind of stumbled into palliative care during a summer internship in chaplain language, it's called clinical pastoral education, a summer internship in a hospital near my house, happened to be a Catholic hospital, happened to be a community hospital. During my summer there, I was assigned to the oncology ward and met kind of the quintessential patient in denial, if you will. Uh, she was a uh, woman in her 60s with widely metastatic ovarian cancer, who was um, sure she was gonna beat it. Uh, no doubts in her mind. Everyone else around her, her family, of course, the nurses on the unit were, were all angsting because they knew she wasn't going to beat it. And so how were they gonna get her to see that? You know, kind of one of those classic challenging patient situations. Um, so I was new to the hospital setting in this, in this role as a chaplain. And so I was chatting with the nurses at the nursing station and kind of saying like, so what, what happens in a situation like this? Uh, you know, how does this usually unfold? And they said, oh, you know, um, we were really worried about what was gonna happen, but just today her oncologist consulted the palliative care team. So now we're just, we're confident that everything is gonna go swimmingly. And I was immediately doubtful. I, I couldn't possibly imagine how any kind of team could, could work with this intractable situation. And so, um, I said, so what is this team? And they, they described and said that sure enough, you know, I would see them on the unit shortly and uh, they would be meeting with the patient and her family. So they appeared, the team at that time, it was just a doctor and a nurse. And um, I introduced myself to them and found out that they were um, 
really important characteristic of a palliative care team. They were uh, just natural teachers. They really believed in that just in time kind of each one teach one model. So I, I said, you know, here I'm this, you know, baby chaplain. I'm, I'm have been spending time with this patient. Um, the nurses are so excited you're here. What is it that you're going to do? And um, they said, just come along with us. Uh, come on into this meeting. We're going to meet with the patient and her family. This is like a day later. And um, you can see what we do. So I went to my first palliative care family meeting. <clears throat> Back in those days, uh, I think it was like an hour and 45 minutes long. You know, we had this wow. real luxury of time. Um, afterwards, leaving the room, uh, after sitting through the, the meeting with the patient and her family, I knew two things. Um, first, I knew what kind of chaplain I wanted to be when I grew up. I was still in seminary at the time. Secondly, I knew that if and when I'm seriously ill, that's exactly how I want to be treated. Because uh, of course, she, she went home, she was discharged to hospice. Um, I got to make a few home visits with the team too, and see that, you know, she went from being the quintessential like patient in denial to being the mythical, you know, good enough death uh, at the end. Um, got to, you know, do the unfinished business, all that kind of stuff. So um, that's that's how I got started. I had um, great, great relationships. Eventually, so eventually, fast forward, gosh, how long did it take? Five years, seven years? Um, anyways, it took quite a while. I think, no, uh, five more years before I was actually the full-time dedicated chaplain, palliative care chaplain on that palliative care team. Um, because at that time in the field, um, their palliative care program was really new. It was only about a year and a half old, I think, at that moment when I encountered them, hence their hour and 45 minute long family meeting, you know, back in the day. Um, and uh, they had, you know, funding for a physician and a nurse, but they didn't even have a social worker. And there was no plan to ever have a chaplain. Um, it just was seen as not even a luxury, like a just not even something that you would do. Um, so we had a, a long way to go um, before uh, I would eventually be a part of that team and, and ended up being the first chaplain on that team. And, and at that time, um, you know, across the US, uh, I didn't really have many colleagues. Um, and so there were some additional issues around that too. We were kind of it, similar to, I think, the medical world in the spiritual care world. If I were to introduce myself as a palliative care chaplain, we would get that same kind of comment that medical professionals get of, well, wait, but we all do palliative care. What, what makes you so special? Why do you, what do you mean to say you're a palliative care chaplain? I'm that too. You know, so, so we had that whole, that whole um, era of, you, you guys aren't doing anything different than we all do. Um, so those, those were kind of the beginning challenges. That and the hospital loved uh, the team, uh, at the team initially, the team as it grew, they were beloved and which helped with culture change immensely. But 
really big struggle in the first several years to be anything other than the comfort care. We had these VIP like dying suites. Um, and that was really what everybody thought palliative care was at that beginning stage is we were, oh, someone's dying. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody knows how to manage the meds. Call palliative care. Um, so it took years of work and, and those just-in-time educational moments like they brought me in to, to educate uh, and transform the culture of that hospital so that they knew to call us way earlier uh, to where that program now is, you know, emergency room, um, outpatient. Um, all the settings where you actually have a chance to, as a palliative care team, do so much more than just brink of death care. Well, and I think, you know, you've kind of, in that description, kind of described of like the process that we've had to go through of explaining people. Um, and that, you know, in fact, we did sort of start with end of life hospice care and that moving it upstream and having people understand that it is an interdisciplinary process and, and moving it out. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because as you were talking, I was swirling um, in my mind. Um, so for many of the students to understand, I started uh, taking, I had to take a year long practicum in hospice and then started in an urban hospice and then did community hospice and then palliative care. But I think what you were speaking to also was like when you talked about the patient um, with and I, I, it's funny because you were so relaxed about it. And, and when we get consults for patients in denial, right? We always get those consults. And the interesting part, I think about, um, uh, you know, people still quote, you know, Kubler-Ross is five stages, but we know that in palliative care, that's not really true anymore. Mm -hmm. But also for people to understand meeting people where they're at. And there are some people who will always stay in that place and that's their Absolutely. hope right Absolutely. and so you know in my mind like i wouldn't be calling you just for the patient i would be calling you for me to say help me go into that room to be in the space where that person is because we are living this differently right and so i think about how much chaplaincy is so important to the team not just to the patient so, so true, so true. And, you know, again, thankfully, I, I feel like I did not have a representative experience as a palliative care chaplain. I, I think I had an exemplary experience because as when I was finally, um, so just to backtrack a bit. So, you know, I think there's that phrase, I don't think it's common just to Catholic healthcare, you know, no, no margin, no mission. Um, in, in my story, it really ended up being um, no sister, no mission, because um, we, the team fought for years to uh, fund my position. Um, it, it was just an uphill battle until one of the sisters, one of the Catholic sisters who um, was still walking the halls of the hospital at that time said, you know what, um, chief exec of said hospital, you are gonna make this happen. And, and then it happened. And um, thankfully I was, so my team kind of fought for me to be there for a long time before I got there, which is, 
is a wonderful thing because then when I got there, my physician and the nurse manager colleagues, they already had a really well-formed vision for what a chaplain could be and do on a team. And the main component was exactly what you just described. Team wellness. I mean, yes, of course, it's assumed you'll be there for the patients and, and their family members, their loved ones, and their spiritual and existential and meaning-making and suffering-related needs. But they had this huge vision for, Denise, you know, what, what can we do so that as a team, we can thrive? And our team mantra, if you will, was the quality of our work is only going to be as good as the quality of our team. And that was what we lived by. So um, we had, oh gosh, uh, these thematic reflections. We had regular offsite retreats. We had lunches together every day and then off-site lunch every Friday. We had, um, they were, they were, and they were just so open. They would pretty much have gone with just about any wellness idea I had. They were really uh, fun and experimental. So long before it was popular, we were sitting in the hospital chapel practicing mindfulness meditation every day at lunch for 10 minutes. Um, so um, it was, they really got that vision and it was so uh, such a source of job satisfaction to me because you know we all I think if, if folks in this program folks drawn to this kind of program we all kind of sense that teamwork that palliative care is a team sport and to the degree that we really lean into that team and let each other practice at the full scope of our expertise and license, just the better off we're all gonna be and feel about the work. And my team really, really did that um, for me. And, um, and I, I'm assuming, I hope of course, that it benefited the team, but, but it, made, um, it made me from the beginning have a very expansive view of chaplaincy just beyond the, well, Denise, will you, the meeting is now over. Will you say a prayer? Uh, I would have died on the vine if that was my, if that was the extent of my role or this patient's crying. Um, will you go see them and talk to them? I mean, yes, of course, I'm happy to do those things, but if that's the extent of the chaplain role, um, you just, you're missing out. <laughs> Everybody's missing out. So you, you bring up two questions that, from what you said. One, um, uh, one I worry though, so this well-being, um, because you know, I, I also feel we, we need to think about the team health of the chaplain and the social worker. And I, I'm always worried that they're quote, responsible for the team and yet they're part of the team. So mm. where do we mm. kind of say mm -hmm. they're in, they're not responsible because I have always thought about, um, you know, you have your family of choice and then you have your work family. Yeah. But your work family, you have to kind of think about how do you take care of all the members of the family and you can't in the work part, you don't wanna have parents Right. right. You want to kind of all be siblings that are kind of working together. So right. kind of thinking about that, how do we help people think about not only 
what you were saying of the, the expertise needed to do that, but that well-being is important and there has to be an investment that it doesn't fall on other people. And if, if people were thinking even about research in that area, just some thoughts on that. Yeah, so um, practically, I would say to my chaplain and social work colleagues out there, uh, in, with regard to wellness, I, I think it works so well to lead by following. So any kind of thing that I came up with or came across in the literature or read a new book on, um, I really tilted towards things that were group led and all hands on deck participatory. Um, because I, I think just intuitively, I knew that I needed this as much as my team members. Like I wasn't somehow exempt or made of Teflon and um, you know, therefore didn't need these things. So I think it's really, really important in crafting team wellness, whoever does it, that it really felt, feels group led. And of course it's, it, it kind of is birthed out of ideally group consensus and group acknowledgement, team acknowledgement that, yeah, this, this is what we need. And this particular format, I think would work well for our particular team composition at this moment. I'll, I'll, feedback is a really good example. So I would include um, honest and constructive feedback as part of team wellness. Um, we had different iterations of our team because of course there's always team turnover and changes in leadership where we had to take team feedback off of the table because we had some folks on our team who had come to us prior to us so wounded by really poorly done feedback. And so when we talked about, hey, let's have this kind of team feedback and we're gonna put these really nice cushy safe, you know, kind of trauma informed, you know, cushions around it. They were like, uh-uh, uh-uh. And so we, we, we put that to the side. Um, now, is that, you know, ideal or the best for the team health overall? No. I mean, of course we would readdress it, but, but it's got, yeah, it has to organically emerge out of the team and it has to be created in such a way that everybody can interact with it as a participant. Um, that's, that's my, as you can tell, strong bias. Um, research, gosh, I would love to see more research done on this idea of what does team wellness, uh, what can it look like? What is actually beneficial and not beneficial? All I have is anecdotal kind of firsthand experience in a very, very little tiny Petri dish, if you will, that was given to me. But wouldn't it be great to know um, especially post-COVID, especially amidst all the talk about, you know, hey, don't, don't just tell us we're burned out because burnout has a lot more to do with systemic and structural issues than whether or not I'm doing enough yoga. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential to look at wellness, um, possibly intersection points with burnout. There is, there's got to be an interplay there, but but to do it in a way that, that I, I just think palliative care, there is potential because we are so interdisciplinary and interprofessional to learn a lot more um, possibly than other 
other types of teams in other settings. Well, you've mentioned so many great points. I mean, I think one of the things for me in nursing, I, I think, you know, saying self-care activities, there's nothing worse to say to a nurse, right? Like they yeah. have, a, or they have a time to use the bathroom. So yeah. you're going to make them feel guilty for not doing exactly. Z. So, you know, you're part about an integration. I think the other part that you mentioned that is so important is that I think in palliative care, we make this assumption about people in palliative care are being spending time in Oregon, earthy, crunchy, and, you know, really feeling and all that. But you and I both know they're very different teams and teams very much react to different parts. Um, uh, I know I worked with some teams that their wellness strategy was humor, but it was really dark. And there were times times that I would say, you know, we need to use this as a barometer. If somebody came in and listened to this and this got printed in the paper, would we be okay with this? There are times when I was like, this is not appropriate. And there was, you know, a little bit of sarcasm and a little bit of uh, sexual connotations. I mean, it just went there. So I think, you know, thinking about that, and then I've had other teams where there's one person who wants to be very woo woo and they'll do that. And the rest of the team, because that relationship hasn't been built, you just watch people physically pulling back. And so Shut down. Oh, that, yeah. you know, how do we do that? I think the other part you are really speaking to is that, um, you know, we get so focused on what we do for patients and families and the whole part about an effective team um, is interesting. And I would be also curious because you've mentioned this a couple of times, does it make a difference of what the team does for wellness if there is a mission and a religious context Mm. to people holding Mm. on to, right? Because Mm. you are Mm. working in a hospital with that framework Mm. um, than without. And I'm not making a judgment of better or worse, but you just know that there's a different ethos, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So those are just some things that I think came up for me about that. Um, Any thoughts about that or does that just? Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess to to your last point, um, to the first point, yes. And that's that's why I think it's gotta emerge from the team organically, all hands on deck buy-in. I I know one of the teams, I worked with in the past, you know, they're one of their primary wellness strategies is they, thankfully they have a pretty soundproof office and it's like a dance party. So they just flip on some really loud music and they just all start dancing their little, you know, what's off. Um, so it, it, it doesn't, there, it, there isn't a, a framework. There isn't a formula for what it has to look like. Um, but you're right, probably some parameters around, um, you know, not, not getting fired for some HR um, violations. Um, but, you know, to your second point, um, you know, I, it's, it's hard to, I don't know, I'd have to, I'd have to think about that a little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, just a thought. I, on the West Coast, where I forever and always practiced, um, we're probably like one of the main like spiritual but not religious centers. So even though I've always worked in faith-based healthcare, um, I feel like I've worked with um, pretty much 
more humanists and atheists and agnostics than probably some other swaths of the country. Um, so for me, I've, I've never really, I've never really felt the connection between what we did or did not do for team wellness and our, the hospital's faith-based identity. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, but I, I, I know, again, and this is switching into some of the roles I've had of on a national level with regard to palliative care programs within Catholic health, I know that that is not true across the country. Yeah, I think, and, and so I think it's just interesting to think about, um, you know, you were speaking about, you learned this. So it sounded like you didn't have that much mentoring. You were kind of learning it as you went along. Yeah. Um, so you'd want to talk about like, how do you, how did you figure out who could mentor you? And then as you became more of a specialist, what was that road for chaplaincy? Because I don't think we hear about you know, the certification for chaplaincy or because of the different faiths. Um, I kind of find it humorous of um, there has still been some splitting of different faiths of how they go towards certification, although there's been some joining together. So you want to speak a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah. So it is a uh, machete in hand kind of blaze your own trail. Wow. Really, definitely when I became a palliative care chaplain, um, I became certified uh, the first when the certification went live through um, my certifying body, the Association of Professional Chaplains. And at that point, and it's not too much different now, you cobble together your own uh, real life fellowship, if you will, is how I looked at it. So I happened to land in this amazing team, my mentor, um, was and, and now more colleague and friend was my physician colleague at the time um, because I always tease him. He was really just a chaplain who happened to go to medical school. Um, I forgave him for it, of course, but, <laughs> but um, he was my mentor. Um, he was my thought partner. He was the one who, um, you know, encouraged me toward leadership roles and still does to this day. Um, and so with that, you know, I had by the time that the advanced certification in hospice and palliative care for chaplains had gone live, uh, I was ready to apply because I'd been part of a quality improvement program thanks to, uh, that's one of the requirements for certification for chaplains, by the way. Um, thanks to the Live Strong grant, um, where we first met you, um, where our team became, we uh, got the Joint Commission Advanced Certification in Palliative Care and you were our mentor through that process. So because I had been fully included as, and, and just expected to be a leader, um, when that certification came around, I, I already had all the pieces of it and was ready to apply and go. But that again, my, I'm the exception and not the rule. For most chaplains, um, who would want to pursue that advanced certification. So it's been, it's been live since 2014. It's gone through several iterations, as you mentioned, the most exciting of which now is that it is um, the pathway toward that certification can be accessed through multiple different chaplain certifying bodies through um, the National Association of Catholic Chaplains, my associating body, 
and uh, several and some others. So, so there is some unity coming our way amongst those feisty chaplains. Um, but uh, it, it, I'm on that certifying committee. So I can tell you um, from firsthand experience that each and every chaplain we certify as uh, a hospice and palliative care chaplain has put together their own pathway uh, to that certification. So someday um, maybe we'll have fellowships. Um, someday maybe we'll have um, you know a, a more uh, robust, thorough kind of educational, practical pathway. There are, there are, I shouldn't say, there are a couple chaplain fellowships. I think the VA is one of the places that have it. There are some educational pathways, um, but you, there's, they're not systematized or standardized in any way just yet. And all that to say, just to kind of level set expectations for people thinking, oh, I wanna get a palliative care chaplain on my team. There are only about 50 of us certified in the United States wow. as we talk today. And lots of reasons for that. And that would be where I'd put on kind of my national leadership hat. But again, it points to how my experience was so rare. On the whole, um, chaplains, so you have to already be board certified to apply for the specialty certification. And, and chaplains aren't necessarily given the, the resources, the support, um, and the incentives um, that other disciplines are to, to get this certification. I mean, for example, just brass tacks, um, my role, I haven't heard of anyone's role or pay grade changing after they get the certification. And again, wouldn't you hope that chaplains would do it just for the love of humanity? Um, but there is a practical aspect of, of where chaplains come to us and say, so, so why would I get this certification? Because I, I have to do all this extra stuff. I pay this money and my hospital is going to treat me exactly the same or my hospice is going to treat me exactly the same. So, so there are some um, systemic, some, some reforms that, that could potentially help us in that way um, that I hope will happen someday. Denise, I mean, I, I did not realize that the number was that low, so I'm sort of still stunned. Um, and that speaks to me of a big area of leadership that I think, in, in my mind, you know, we've talked to some of the other people. Um, if we're going towards quality and thinking about that, you know, we can look at programs who have gotten certified and now besides Joint Commission, there's DNV for hospitals mm -hmm. uh, in the community. We still have the Joint Commission. We have the um, Accreditation Commission for Home Care and Hospice, um, and they'll do those programs and respite programs. And then CHAP will do any sort of community program. So there's a, you know, there's some good players. So mm -hmm. if you, but that's expensive for programs, right? And then you have to, you have to keep maintaining it. So for smaller programs that might not be uh, financially viable, I think for larger programs or that, I mean, then we really think about let's get our uh, palliative care specialist certified because that's a mark of excellence. But from what you're saying, um, there are so few that you can imagine that even that alone, you know, it's, it's such an interesting statement because usually at least people will pay for you to take the exam if you pass it or, you know, in some of those incentives of education. But it sounds, I mean, I think one of the things that you're sort of saying to me is um, 
we have kind of looked at this model where, um, you know, hospice started out really as pretty nurse driven in palliative care, it became academic and more physician driven. We're talking about healthcare reform. And if we're going to do real healthcare reform, it means that we have to change things as they were. And that means really embracing the whole teams. But mm -hmm. I think the part that you've talked about that um, I find inspiring is, I mean, you have this wonderful leadership role now in sort of taking palliative care to the Catholic health system. And I'll let you explain it so I don't get it wrong. But I think your role as a chaplain to do that is really, really important. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so so Catholic healthcare, uh, thankfully, were early adopters first of that realization that happened in the 90s that people were dying badly in hospitals, you know, death had become so medicalized. And because of the mission um, that's embedded in the DNA of Catholic healthcare, and specifically many of the sisters who founded the orders, you know, their special uh, focus or charism as it's called in the Catholic world was care of the dying. So it was hugely insulting to Catholic healthcare systems to find out in some early focus group studies and things done in the 90s that, um, whoops, sorry, that people <laughs> were uh, dying badly in their beds, in their hospitals. So, so they um, did not like that and were um, early adopters in, you know, kind of proto-palliative care, really hospice at that point, um, and better comfort care in the hospital. So they were also then early adopters in this new thing called palliative care, the organization that I uh, first stepped into a leadership role with the support of Care Coalition. So back in 05, uh, they, that organization pivoted to have its focus be exclusively on standing up palliative care programs within Catholic healthcare entities of all sorts. So by the time I came into uh, leadership in that organization, I think the, the current CAPSI data were that 97%. So I think the, the everybody numbers like 94% of hospitals over 250 beds now have palliative care programs. Well, well Catholic healthcare was Inch, you know, even an inch further across the finish line with that. So they really uh, wholeheartedly embraced this idea of whole person care for everybody with serious illness. You shouldn't have to wait till you have a prognosis of six months or less to get this kind of whole person care, body, mind, and spirit. Um, so, but then in my leadership role, and so my organization Support of Care Coalition as of January, 2021 became a part of a larger and really the only um, association for Catholic healthcare in the United States. And it's called the Catholic Health Association. And they, we'd been partners and friends since the Support of Care Coalition's beginnings back in the early nineties. And it just made sense for us to work together as one unit. And um, as we embrace kind of and reboot, what does it look like for Catholic healthcare to continue to lead the way, you know, we, to walk our talk that palliative care is just integral, it's standard of care for people with serious illness. The next wave, I believe, is standardization. So we can, 
Catholic Health Ministries can check that box. Yes, we have a palliative care program, but we all know what that means in real life. Uh, that means there is a hospital that has a hospice nurse that comes Monday, Wednesday, Friday and sees palliative care patients. And so they say, yeah, we have a palliative care program. And then that means you have a team like the one I was a part of and they check the box and say, we have a palliative care program. Um, those two programs don't resemble each other much at all. So, so I really uh, see that as the next wave of leadership that Catholic Health has an opportunity to uh, really participate in. What does it look like to standardize uh, palliative care? Or as my colleagues at Providence, where I um, worked for many years, Providence Health on the West Coast would say, you know, how do we reduce clinical variation? How do we ensure that if you pop into a Providence hospital in Washington state or Southern California and you need palliative care, those two experiences mirror each other. They're not identical, it's not a cookie cutter, um, but they both uphold the national consensus project guidelines and standards. And again, back to my special focus, which means they include spiritual care. You know, Betty Farrell, I, every time I hear her speak on spiritual care, you know, she will say that her famous line, you know, if you're not providing spiritual care, you're not providing palliative care. Um, it's true. It's true. Well, and I think it's an interesting part because, um, you know, so a couple of things. I mean, I think that's why we developed the National Consensus Project to say we knew what hospice was. The COPs, conditions of participation, delineate that. And that. so when palliative care, when we say palliative care, what does it mean? What is specialist palliative care? I think now, obviously, we have conversations about primary palliative care. I think, you know, what you also make me think about, and I, I know you're thinking about this too, of, so we have different entities that have different resources. What you can do in an academic medical center is very different than what you can do in a community and rural. Um, and I say that having worked and you know co-founded a program in an academic center, and now I'm in a community hospital, we don't have a designated social worker. We don't have a designated chaplain. And you know when I cover, I am covering by myself, which is so interesting to me when I think about team. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's this it is an interesting part about what is it mirror and, and then what is the responsibility if you don't have all the players that for me as a provider specifically means that I actually have to have a more of a skill set to not replace the chaplain. Right. But right to address some of the spiritual needs, to not replace the social worker, but at least know how to assess and sort of say, okay, wait, we have some needs here we need to address. Um, I think in a smaller setting, I have to say that sometimes when I bring those up, I am not a popular person. Um, <laughs> so it's just interesting, but I think that's, you know, I think what you're doing and what you're saying for the future is, you know, what can you do? And I, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, in one sense, if you have this mandate and it's within the Catholic Health Association, there's certainly something to be said because that's what happened at the VA, right? They said, okay, we're going to have palliative care across the system, but the, as we all know, they're different visions and they all have different things going on. So what it looks like will be different, but there was that mandate. And I, you know, and I think the next part for it specifically to nursing that was kind of cool was then that now is within all of the VA systems that an APRN, no matter what state they practice in, 
is practicing the full scope of practice because they said, we're going to, we need to elevate this. And so that's affected the palliative care. So that's sort of an ambitious, I mean, I think that's great and it has ramifications and I think it, it also ups the ante, right? Yes. It does. Um, and I was also thinking for you as a leader, being a chaplain, maybe you can be more grounded and <laughs> um, help people kind of wade through this more. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and, and both of the things you said are true. So yes, every uh, healthcare setting where people are living with serious illness will not have a fully staffed interdisciplinary team. That will never happen. Um, yet, I will say that I am seeing some really cool things being done with uh, telehealth and palliative care teams. I know some of our systems are experimenting with having a fully remote team that all they do, they're a palliative care team, um, they are interdisciplinary and they are available for consults to these rural settings, mostly rural hospitals that would never, never have any member of a palliative care team designated on site all the time. So I think, I think technology will um, be an equalizer of sorts. Um, and, and I do have to say too, that this is really near and dear to the heart of the Catholic health mission is um, we get very, very upset when we find out that people are being left out, disenfranchised, marginalized, not receiving certain services because of their zip code, or of course, because of their ethnic or racial or cultural background. That, those things really, really irk us. So, so we get real creative about how to, how to eliminate that. And, and to your point though, I mean, I love that you are a troublemaker, uh, making good trouble, right? At, when you serve as a solo clinician, we know it's not the ideal, but we are working toward a world, a, a field where everybody does have some level of palliative care general, generalist skills. And that does include psychosocial and spiritual care. So we want everybody. I mean, folks who go through the master's program and the, and the class in spiritual psychosocial care, we want everybody at the end to say, okay, ah, deep breath. <laughs> I don't need to, you know, the minute they say something about God or religion, or why is this happening to me? I don't need to immediately, you know, get the chaplain over here, stat. Um, I can pause and I can say something like, gosh, tell me more. Uh, it's, it's not rocket science. Um, and we all can be whole person care providers. And I think that is the beautiful contagion of palliative care that we little by little hopefully are infecting the entire field of medicine with our with our good virus which is pay attention to all of the person um, not just the organ not just the diagnosis but who they are and and do it skillfully uh, but with generalist level of skill uh, which I think I think is attainable. I think is possible. But I'm I'm a super duper optimist. <laughs> well, when you you know, um, so you, you sort of said some things, and maybe you've answered the question. Um, you know, 
how will you feel like you've succeeded that mm. um, that this is because it won't always be done right we'll have turnover but you know what do you see as kind of a measure of success Oof. wow yeah yeah you're right it kind of everything <laughs> everything I've said but but I think you know I also want to say um, I don't want to discount like I don't want to put all of our success in the future. I, I also want to acknowledge like we've succeeded a lot already. Um, and I don't want to discount, um, you know, or, or not take a moment to savor and be content with the wonderful successes that we've had. I mean, just that the three of us are here doing this podcast under this umbrella is um, a massive success for the field. And, you know, sometimes I think about, gosh, palliative care, you know, we've, we've been around forever, you know, kind of laboring in the field, sweat on our brow, you know, but then I think about, gosh, no, we really haven't been around that long. And look how far, look how far we've come. And, and so, yes, do we have so far to go? Yes. Um, and I think, I think success is going to look something like what we just talked about, you know, uh, these specialized teams um, alongside these very well-trained generalists. Um, it's exciting to hear the changes that are happening in, in education for physicians as, as physicians grow up through med school and beyond and for nurses and for social workers and for chaplains. It's exciting to hear that finding out about palliative care uh, potentially happens early in your educational uh, formation. And I just think through those, again, those slowly infiltrative ways, um, success will be that palliative care is normative. It's the standard of care. It's expected. It's just a part of how medical care works when you have a serious illness. Can I jump in with a question? Of course. So um, Denise, you teach in the master's program 604, which is mm -hmm. psychosocial, spiritual, cultural care. And I teach the pain and symptom management course, which is 605 right after it. And we make all the students take both. And I know I'm curious about your experience in 604 because in 605, the social workers and the chaplains are like, why do I have to take this? And there is a level of discomfort, but you know, I'm a big fan of transdisciplinary preparation. I think the chaplain needs to understand what constipation looks like. And I think the pharmacist needs to be able to do a basic spiritual assessment. So what's your experience been with that in 604 with the non-social worker chaplain crew? Oh yeah, they're terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, many, many are terrified uh, and just a sense of like, uh, if I grouped, a, grouped folks into two very broad generalization groups and there's nuances in here, of course, but there's the ones of, oh my gosh, um, I don't know anything about this and I'm scared to say something wrong. And then secondly, a, there's a little bit of kind of like what you described with the chaplains, like, and why would I need to know anything about this? Um, so yeah, we get, we get both of those. I have to tell you, and I haven't, I haven't told you this uh, personally or out loud yet. I am having 
such a great time in this course because I love to see the arc. So they start there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we start to talk about, well, you know, here's really why spiritual care matters to patients and light bulbs go on. And then, oh, and here's how to just ask a few fairly normal conversational questions to kind of suss out, like, is there spiritual distress and light bulbs go on. And then suddenly by about week or three or four, you can tell through the discussion posts, through their assignments, that they are probably irritating everyone around them because they've become like evangelists for, <laughs> for, for spiritual and psychosocial care. You know, you could tell they're like, you know, they're talking to their pharmacist colleagues saying, you know, we should really be asking about this or our professional standards should change. We should have some reference that pharmacists should be paying attention to psychosocial spiritual care. And, and so, and then you see by the end, kind of the, the full circle of where they come to this really just, I love this place they come to is, this is really important. It's important to impatience, but you know what? It's important to me too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now I have some tools in my toolkit where I feel a bit more comfortable when, cause this stuff's gonna come up and I feel like I kind of have a handle on what I might do or say. And so mm -hmm. I just, it's, it's, fantastic it's a really fantastic experience to be a part of this program and I've had, that to me is, is what it's all about right that's, absolutely. that's yeah I've had the same experience in 605 I recall in our very first cohort we had a chaplain who's from Trinidad Tobago and he was just amazing and at the end of 605 he put in his reflective post I get it now as a chaplain there's a thing called anxiety that you can diagnose that's not just somebody being like cranky. It's a thing. And yeah. then you can be treated for that thing. And he's actually gone on to get his PhD in palliative care from one of the colleges in the United Kingdom. I was a, guess a semester too late in getting this one off the ground for him, but it's yeah. so fulfilling, as you said, to see them come full circle and realize why we need to be transdisciplinary. It's so exciting. Exactly. Well, exactly. and I would... And I would just say from my perspective was like, when I worked with my nurses and my social workers and my chaplains and whatever, I think sometimes the chaplains and the social workers have done a better job because they're not in the prescribing mode, they're in the kind of assessing the person. And so it actually kind of comes out in a different way sometimes it's really, and so I think some of them are better skilled than you know some of the clinicians I've worked with. Yeah. But I have to say that if I had to pick a one-woman palliative care team, it would be Connie Dolan. Don't you think? Oh, is? absolutely. <laughs> Connie Dolan, because Cicely Saunders isn't available this week. Totally. Huh? totally. <laughs> you guys are too funny. Um, but I think, you know, Denise, I think that what you're doing, though, is just so important because I think you represent leadership. You represent pulling in your, per, um, you know, your profession, thinking about that, and also sort of saying, okay, where do we go differently? And this, this whole part about language, right? So um, I've been pretty inspired, um, Lynn knows this, that um, the last Future of Nursing report came out um, 2030 and it's called um, Charting a Course Towards Health Equity. And there are a couple of things in the report that are really important in my mind. One is it's taking from, from patient and family-centered care to patient, family, and community-centered care. Mm. And you're kind of speaking about yes. that, right? Because we all live in a community and that affects 
how we do it. And however you want to define community, that's okay. The second part of it that was fascinating to me, because I, you know, I look at these things and then I do a word search. They never mentioned the word medical care. It was healthcare with medical needs and social needs. And that to me mm. was huge because mm. I think it is about what you're talking about. Like there are these, you could say psychosocial, spiritual needs that if we address those, the medical needs would change, right? Um, but rethinking this care, what you're talking about of this holistic care, which we know that most patients need that more than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think what you're speaking to is creating this space where when you were saying mirroring, it's that people are getting the assessment that they need and hopefully there's alignment with the services that they get. But you might have more to that if there's more of what you're thinking of outcomes or you, you might yeah. not be that far yet. <laughs> well, you know, um, when you bring in community, I mean, you're so right. And I mean, I, I think of Don Berwick, you know, as kind of the, the guru and the prophet for um, the moral imperative of providing health care, not sick care. Um, and how so much of what happens by the time someone enters a healthcare facility um, with a serious illness, so much of what happened prior to that out in the community um, remains unaddressed. You know, and it goes back to the all those old kind of uh, aphorisms about you know, um, let's not just um, catch people as they fall over the cliff. Let's actually build a fence at the top of the cliff so people aren't falling over and the, the social needs, uh, AKA social determinants of health, you know, all the different phrases being thrown around about that are to me, I guess back to your question about outcomes. I mean, if I thought of the most expansive way that palliative care could help medicine re-envision itself, I would think that it would be that, that we would push our vision outside of our walls and into, gosh, well, I mean, I hope I'm not getting too political here, but into what, what COVID has revealed. We don't have a public health system. We have a medical system um, that you can access when you're sick and for many people, uh, you don't get access to it until you're way too sick. Hence, you know, hence I think of Stu Farber's uh, quote, you know, many people say palliative care is, is, a, is a workaround. It's filling a gap of a broken part of the medical system that, that ideally would be fixed. And again, that is one of the exciting things about our new work within the Catholic Health Association is their primary strategic focus right now. And they have issued a call to all members of the Catholic Health Association, which includes almost every Catholic hospital in the United States um, to make specific commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And to me, so that when they also at the same time adopted this expanded vision for hospice and palliative care, to me, those things are of a piece. They're not even two different things um, because that's exactly where much of serious illness lives, are in those, the same communities, the same groups of people 
who are not already getting equitable access, um, are overlooked, are under under resourced. Um, so to me, that that all fits together. And I guess thanks because you helped me think of my my most expansive vision for palliative care, is that it would um, change the way we conceive of medical care and push it out into these social needs that create the conditions where so much illness comes from. Well, I think what you're bringing up is that traditionally, you know, again, when you look at our evolution, first we were trying to get care in a different way. Then we were trying to make the care more accessible by going from hospice to palliative care. We focused on the clinical. And as we evolve, there are certain things that happen as you become more mainstream, if you will, that have to happen in terms of um, metrics and payment issues we have to work out and all that. But what we are also saying is then we, we still have to think about this health equity piece. Um, and it's interesting, you know, and you, well, first of all, I haven't heard Stu Farber's name list, mentioned in a long time, but I'm glad you did. And it is interesting that somebody could say that that's a workaround because think about what we're trying to say is not that it's a workaround, but saying that it has been forgotten that the patient and family and goals of care concordant is at the center. And yet, I guess you could say, because the support study failed miserably, here we are, we're still working on it 30 years later, right? Um, so there's a lot in that of you offering the students like places to think about where they can lead and be thinking about some of these pieces together. Exactly. And one of the things I haven't talked about in my role and that I, I actually interject regularly into the spiritual and psychosocial course, because it's many of the students recognize, of course, these same issues we're talking about, just the, the brokenness of our systems to um, provide whole person care. So one of the most exciting parts of my role prior to this integration and now has been in the advocacy space. And there are, um, of course, uh, Pachita, the Palliative Care Hospice Education and Training Act is working its way, uh, potentially getting introduced in this session of Congress. Again, hopefully uh, passed. Um, I think we're on year 10 of, of working on that bill now, which folks on the Hill tell me is not, not that unusual for a bill of this size and focus. But alongside that, we see um, like the home and community-based services uh, legislation being proposed. We see some um, great things coming out of a Medicare demonstration projects and concurrent care and ways that people are recognizing and, and addressing at federal levels, lots of good work going on in states to um, make this care part of care. Um, you're right, and not in the Stu Farber sense of a workaround, but in the sense of it's, in, it's always going to be here, palliative care will always be here, yet uh, the philosophy and the call back to the heart of what healthcare is, again, will hopefully infiltrate, will transform all of healthcare to a degree. Um, so, so it's, it's a, a, a space that requires a lot of patience and long suffering, but I am, I am hopeful about the advocacy space too. There are some exciting things happening and more and more allies on the Hill, 
more and more um, people from Congress who have had a mother, a father, a grandmother. Well, gosh, even our own president has had a person, his son with a serious illness who, who get it on a deep and visceral level that things are not ideal for people with serious illness. So um, I hope for change on that level too. Well, he also understands grief and loss since he lost his wife tragically too. So that sets yes. a different tone. Without you, um, you having to, you know, reveal any secrets or, you know, work, are there certain things that of your strategy in terms of doing this from the association? Because I think that's a really important part of leadership, of understanding um, you, you have this mandate, if you will, to, to infiltrate this in the association. But what are some of the tangible things that you're sort of trying to help um, bring forth change of actions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. And yeah, I can speak to that on a high level. So part of our strategy continues to be the same strategy we had um, as when we were Supportive Care Coalition is we really do believe and see great things happen um, from through the simple power of convening. Mm -hmm. So as we are able to get people uh, working in this field around the same tables, um, sharing their, their war stories, if you will, um, sharing their successes and creating places where this cross-pollination can occur. A lot of good comes out of that. So we are, that's a key part continuing of our, our, our strategy is convening people who are doing this work um, in networking and um, educational ways, um, cross-pollination ways to um, share. You know, it's just kind of that simple, almost back to how I, I was raised up as a chaplain, kind of an each one teach one. You know, there's a simplicity and, and beauty in that, hey, this is what we did and how it worked. And, oh, really, we have that same problem. Um, let's talk more. Tell me how you overcame this challenge. Um, Secondly, though, you know, we have a great opportunity before us um, in this kind of collective of people working in Catholic healthcare to really venture into. And I mean, it might, I, I don't know, it might go as far to use your word as mandates or calls to action toward standardization, toward uh, quality. And I think that is, um, I, I'm hoping and I'm planning that that will be part of our strategy, how we work that out, um, you know, the devil's in the details, but, but the convening and then also the shared commitment. So some walking of our talk to actually staff up, um, to have more than, gosh, last count, there are 13, Catholic health hospitals that have the Joint Commission Advanced Certification in Palliative Care. Now, I think the grand total is still under 200-ish. Does that sound right to you? So not a terrible showing given that, you know, that, that certification remains challenging for many, many programs as we talked about earlier. But, but my hope and vision would be that, again, that would be a place where Catholic healthcare would lead the way. Not only do we have programs, but we have programs that meet the national standards and we can show it in these ways. Wow. I, you know, Denise, you're, um, 
I mean, it's sort of an inspiration and sort of thinking about um, of you as like a chaplain in, in this wonderful vision of people. And then there's this leadership role of showing this wonderful um, uh, collective leadership coming from a very mission-driven internally North Star way. I mean, you convey that. And, and so I think that that's inspiring because I think we need to see um, leaders other than physicians who are doing this work to role model the change. Um, and I just think your, you know, your perspectives on where this has come from um, is, is really important for people because the, it's the different voices of how people can step in and make a difference. So I have really enjoyed just having this time and, and hearing your voice. Lynn, do you have any other questions that you would like to ask? No, I think you're awesome. And I'm really delighted that you teach for us. Thank you. <laughs> so it's Denise, an honor. It's yes, great thank fun. You. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was lovely. And I know that for our students, you know, you've really heard a lot of different points from thinking about the individual to moving from a program to thinking of national and to think about, you know, different associations and thinking about the different steps. And so as you're thinking about moving into your next leadership, and we're asking you to say, okay, in this PhD program, where are you going to go? You've had yet a really another great example of different places that you can step in. So that is all for today. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.